I'm going to be reading from Exodus 17, 10 through 17 as a passage that Rod uh, wants me to read in relation to the Genesis passage this morning. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Ur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Ur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll, as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it. Because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, For hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Well, good morning. It's been a crazy journey in Haiti with the folks from Idaho who have gone over to bring children into the Dominican Republic. And many of us have been watching every day to see what is going on and what the fate of these folks will be. They went over to love children, and they've been charged with child kidnapping, put back in jail. And the Baptist missionaries from Idaho uh, sit this day in a prison. And many of us have been praying for the release Many of us have been praying for God's justice to be done in the middle of it. The truth is we don't really know what's going on over there, do we? Sometimes we get a little bit judgmental, thinking we figured out the whole situation. But the reality is there are folks who want over there who are followers of Christ, and therefore children of God, with a desire to serve Him. And as they sit in that prison this day, the question arises, who will stand with them? in this trying time. Who will fight for them, even though they might have made some unwise choices to bring these children into the Dominican Republic? Who will come along their side? Who will love them in the middle of this chaos? Well, I have no doubt at this very moment, in the middle of that Haitian prison, that the living God, creator of the universe, lover of our souls, is with them this very day. And that he fights for them. And he stands with them. Just like he did when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were about to be thrown into the fiery furnace. And they were accused of wrongdoing by Nebuchadnezzar. But the defender stepped in for them. Just like he will step in for those in Haiti. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said this to Nebuchadnezzar. Listen, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into this blazing furnace, the God that we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from, the, from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods. And they threw him into the fiery furnace And then Nebuchadnezzar goes over and he says, look, I see four men walking around in the fire. 
and they are unbound and they are unharmed. And the fourth one in the fire looks like the son of the gods. He is our defender. He is our fortress. He is our intercessor. He is the true and just judge. And he will stand with us, just like he stood with Moses and Joshua. And he will lift our arms, and he will be our strength, and he will be our shield, all the way from the beginning of time through the end, where he is our intercessor. This is the character of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus. And we must remember in the middle of sometimes being in prison, like Ephesians reminds us, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so we are reminded, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests, and keep this in mind. Always be on alert and always keep on praying for the saints. Let's just pray for those in Haiti uh, this morning. Father, you ask us to pray for your saints, your children, who are facing battles of all kinds. And so this morning we pray specifically for those folks in Haiti, the ones who want to, to serve you and somehow got mixed up in this big mess. And I pray right now, Father, that your presence would, would just overwhelm them, that your love would pour out upon them, and that they would be able to rest in the truth that you are with them in that fiery furnace right now. Would you touch their lives this very day? We thank you that you are their shield and their fortress. And we thank you that they don't have to defend themselves. We thank you that you defend them, just like you defend us. In your precious name, amen. Jacob is about to see God in a whole new light. He's about to see him as the defender of his life. He's about to see Jehovah as one who will stand with him one who will actually fight for him. He will see God's love pour out upon him as he intercedes for his life, as Jacob is on the run. Let me remind you of the story real quick. Jacob has taken off out of the camp of Laban. And he is on the run. Laban was out shearing the sheep. And so while he's doing that, he gets his family together and they're heading back to the land of the fathers, of Jacob's father. And all of a sudden, Laban, his father-in-law, finds out. And so he's in hot pursuit of Jacob. And on the way, he catches up to Jacob, and he camps out overnight, and God speaks to Laban in the evening and says, I don't want you to touch my servant. I don't want you to say anything towards him. He wakes up the next morning and he comes into the camp and he confronts Jacob. He says, Jacob, this is a foolish thing that you have done. Why have you deceived me like this? Why have you taken my daughters out of the camp? You shouldn't have done such a thing. I could harm you, but God spoke to me last night. I could take you out of the picture. 
My biggest thing is, why did you steal my gods? Jacob doesn't know what he's talking about because Rachel took the gods without him knowing. And so he says, well, listen, Laban, if anybody took your gods, may they die. Go ahead and search the camp. And so he goes from tent to tent while they go, warmer, a little warmer, hot, hot, hot. And he still doesn't find them. Rachel's sitting on top of the gods in a saddlebag, donkey's deal or camel's deal. Comes out, he says, I can't find the gods. Then Jacob is upset and he, and he fights with them and he yells at them. He says, why would you accuse me of such a thing? I've been faithful in my service to you all these years. I never cheated you once. How dare you accuse me of such a thing? Laban starts to realize that things aren't going well. And so he says, come, let's, let us make a covenant. Let us grab some rocks here and we will set up a, a heap of witness. And we will remind each other that this, this line, this boundary, this pile of rocks, we won't cross into each other's camp. We won't do each other harm. And, they, and then Laban reminds Jacob, listen, we'll set up this deal so that we know that the gods are watching and that your God is watching you to know. And so they set up this peace treaty, so to speak. And in the morning, Laban gets up and he kisses his grandkids and daughters and he leaves camp. And that's the end of Laban. We don't see any more of him in the Bible. Jacob is on the run and he's finally getting out of the camp of Laban. He's been stuck for a long time. And he's been stuck in this camp and he doesn't know what to do. And finally, he gets out while he's shearing the sheep. Sometimes we've got to leave Laban. We've got to get out of his camp. And if we're stuck, if we're at a place where we desire to continue to grow in the Lord, you've got to leave Laban. It's interesting when you watch Jacob's life. life. He, he, he was on fire for God. He encountered God in the desert. The, the ladder came out of heaven and he said, surely this is the place of God. And I didn't even see it. I didn't even know. And so I will build an altar and I will pour, pour oil on the rocks and I will call this place Bethel, which means house of God. And so it seems at this moment in Genesis 28 that, that Jacob really has life in God. He's finally learning who he is. Then he gets to the camp of Laban and he's at a place where he shows up and all of a sudden his attention goes from God to this beautiful woman, Rachel. And now his focus shifts and we watch his life for 14 years. And you know what? We, we just see spiritual death. We don't see him depending on Christ, on the Lord. We don't see him depending and looking for God, for counsel. He's actually, he's not a good husband to his wives. He treats them in a way that's just unloving and unkind. His spiritual life is in a bad place. And as he's focusing on this, and his life is going down, 20 years, 20 years he seems to have no relationship with the Lord. After 14 years where he's been serving Laban, he finally comes in Genesis 30, 25, and he says to Laban, he says, Laban, listen, send me away that I might go to my home country. And Laban says, but, but you know, how, how am I going to take care of the family, Jacob? How am I going to take care of the family? 
I, let's, let's work out a deal where I give you a certain amount of wages and stick around another six years. Jacob says, send me away that I might go to my home and country. This whole scene right here kind of reminds me of, of these latest Bud Light commercials. Uh, too light, too light here, you know? He, he says, listen, I need to go. Laban's like, you need to stay. So he stays. And then later on, it gets to be too heavy. He lays into Laban like he wouldn't believe. And he, he's just soft. He lets Laban take control of him again. And so he stays another six years stuck in the camp. Doesn't stand up for who he wants to be. I think that's interesting in this story that God allows Laban to, or allows Jacob to suffer the consequence of his deception of his family. But at that whole time, he also is with him. Jacob deceived his whole family, and, and that didn't go without consequence. But the Lord never left his side. And then the Lord actually calls him back. He calls Jacob back to his homeland in Genesis 31.3. Calls him back to live in the promise. Have you heard the Lord calling to your heart recently? That maybe you've been stuck in the camp of Laban? Haven't been able to get out. And the Lord is calling you back home. The Lord said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. Jacob was there for six more years. He wanted to go home. He wanted to go home, and God calls him back to get out of that camp, that place that was spiritual death for him, truly. He was stuck. Do you ever feel stuck? You ever feel like you're in a relationship or a situation and where you just can't seem to get out? Maybe you're in a business relationship where you've been involved in dealings that, that are just not what you had hoped for. They're somewhat deceptive, yet you've grown accustomed to them. You need the money. You feel stuck in a friendship that maybe every time you, you love this friend, but every time you get together, you, you end up doing things that just aren't pleasing to God. You feel kind of stuck. I want to make one thing clear about getting out of camp and feeling stuck. This does not relate to marriage. In marriage, you are stuck. <laughs> but you are stuck together with the beautiful glue of God when he says we become one. And God's work is, is not about your happiness in your marriage, but about your holiness He's about you depending on him to restore your marriage. And you are stuck there in this covenant, this beautiful covenant that God intends you to stay in. God hates divorce. And don't ever think for a minute that the scriptures would say, I need to get out of the camp. Not in marriage. Be renewed by the strength of God who is with you in your marriage and let him be your strength to heal that marriage. And let him pour his love into you that you might pour it out to your spouse. But you know what? We might be stuck in a romantic relationship, one where, where we continue to be sexually physical. And we know that's not where God wants us. But we can't seem to say no to one another. Sometimes you have to leave Laban. You've got to get out of that camp. That God has his promises for you of, of beautiful intimacy within a marriage. And he's calling you 
like he called Laban to live in his promises now. It's time to come back home. God wants to free you from being stuck, and he will call you. And I hope this morning that you hear his voice, like Jacob did, that he's calling you home, and that he will stand with you, and that he will be with you in this journey. You see, it's, it's hard to get away from Laban, isn't it? The enemy pursues hotly, comes after you. And even sometimes for us, we may not even want to get out of the camp. We sort of like Laban. We like his success. We like his money. It seems like he has a pretty comfortable life. We like the ease of that. It seems like his gods are working for him. It doesn't seem like he goes through the pain and the trials that we do as followers of Jesus Christ. It seems like they're shining upon him as gods are. Until one day he wakes up. And everything is gone as he wakes up from shearing the sheep. And everything is gone, even his gods. And so he goes in hot pursuit after Jacob. As Professor Theodore Spangler reminded me, how would you feel if someone came into your house and stole your 50-inch HD TV and went off with it? You would go after them also. Oh, the gods that we worship these days. They keep getting bigger and bigger, these little gods of ours. And so he pursues them because his gods are stolen and he wants Jacob back. And he pursues them because he wants to have control. Laban's gods are many. He's depending on many things in his life. Power and money, property. He has the god of actually his family, but it's really a pretense of a family. They'll do the family photo, but there is no family. He just uses it to say, ah, look at my family. He's proud of himself and how he's a cunning salesman, so to speak. But the truth is, is that he's his own God. All of his life for Laban is about himself. Everything about Laban is living with his power. Everything is under his control. All of a sudden, things got out of control when Jacob and the family left camp. And all of a sudden he got really scared when the gods were missing as well. And so he goes after Jacob. And as we look at Laban's life, the question arises, where are his gods when everything around him is crumbling? Who will stand with him? Who will be with him? Let's look at his life in, in Genesis 31, looking at verse 26, as he tries to make himself look like a good guy all around. You've got to understand, he comes into the scene in verse 26. He really shows up like the godfather. He is a guy, and he, and he really has that role. He is a chieftain. He's the head of his camp. He's a powerful man. He's not some lightweight. He, he's in charge of the whole camp. He's got lots of money, lots of power, and he brings in the muscle with him, doesn't he, when he shows up. And he shows up in verse 26 to Jacob, and he says, Jacob, you've deceived me. And he kisses him right on the lips, puts a horse head in his tent. And as you watch Laban's life, everything again is about, you've deceived me, Jacob. Jacob's sitting there, wait a second. 20 years of my life gone because of your deceptive practices to me. 
But he says this, you took my daughters, otherwise known in the Hebrew as Jacob's wives in this case. They're not your daughters, Laban. They're Jacob's wives. And then he says in 27, I would have thrown you a party. I would have had a big celebration for you. What a great guy I am. Now, you've got to understand the scene. It's like this in this room, okay? You've got the camp set up. Laban and Jacob are going out. Everybody's listening to what's going on. Laban is trying to make himself look like the innocent here. How dare you deceive me? Why would you do this to me? I've been so loving. I would have thrown a big celebration for you. And so he's laying out all these excuses. And you can imagine Laban kind of looks up and sees his daughters and all the family probably rolling their eyes. Going, whatever, Jacob. Whatever, Laban. Really? You're going to play that card? So then he switches gears. Well, I could do you harm. I could do you harm, but your God talked to me last night, so I'm not going to do you harm. And since he can't play that card, then he goes to this. Well, listen, why did you steal my gods? Why did you take them from me? Why would you do such a thing? Why did you take my gods? And so he goes searching through the tents for his powerful gods. Moses wrote this to have irony to it, that it was very clear to the to the Israelites as they would read this story about these gods who had no power whatsoever. How powerful are gods that can actually be stolen from you? How, how much reverence is there to gods that you would put into a, a stinky camel's bag and then he goes even further and that your daughter would sit on it, the gods, during that time of the month, so she says. And all that brings to the Israelite reader's mind is that is unclean. That the reverence for this, these gods is now being sat upon by a woman in her cycle. Who will stand with you? Who will fight for you when all the power is gone? When all the money runs out? When all your control is none? And yet, for some reason, we keep going into the tents looking for our gods. He goes and he keeps trying to find his gods who have no reverence, no power, no life, and there is no relationship. That's the beauty of who we are in Christ. We have relationship with the living God. He's not a God that can be stolen. He's not a God that is sat upon. He is the creator of us. He is the lover of our souls. He is all-powerful, almighty God. Are you so desperate right now that you keep going tent to tent trying to get your gods back? When the Lord is trying to get you away from Laban, that place that is of the world, that place that is of self, that place that depends on you being your own God, Laban starts to realize that, that things are falling apart. And he starts to realize that as, as Jacob speaks forth with power, saying, how dare you accuse me? And Laban tries one more effort in verse 43. He says, wait, but these are all my daughters and these are all my flocks. All that you see belongs to me. And again, he tries to make himself look good in the camp. 
He says, but how could I do harm to my family? And so let us make this, this covenant here. We'll put it the rocks and we'll call it a witness heap. It's a boundary line. And then he tries to look at one more time in verse 49. May the Lord watch between us. Don't mess with my daughters. Don't take any other wives. And God is a witness. You know, he's doing this. It's interesting in 53 as he's setting up this covenant. He calls upon every god under the sun. Nahor's god. These are all pagan gods, you've got to understand. And everyone under the sun, he's calling these gods to make this oath. And the thing that's interesting, he doesn't call upon his gods. He has no idea where they are. And so I'll, I'll go ahead and, and use others. That's his life. And so in the morning, Laban gets up, and he kisses the kids and the grandkids goodbye, and he blessed them, and he went home empty without his gods. And that's the end of Laban. You know, if we choose to live life, Serving ourselves. If we choose to live life every day when we get up, it's all about me. We will be like Laban, who will leave Jacob's camp now, and he will go home empty, alone, without any gods, and there will be no one that is standing by his side, because all he has is himself. There will be no one to lift up his arms. There'll be no one to fight for him because he always fought for himself. His gods were all of that control. There will be no one there to offer him love. And I pray for us and for those that we know that God would turn our hearts to him before we reach this dark place, separated from the true and living God. Laban didn't respond to God. God spoke to him but he wanted to continue going after his own gods. Why would you take my gods? And he went home empty. The story is seen through a different set of eyes and that of Jacob's. Who will stand with you? Who will be by your side? Who will be your defender? And Jacob is learning it will be the living God, Jehovah. As Jacob makes haste from camp, he's afraid of Laban. He is afraid Laban's going to do him harm, that he might take him out. And so he runs from the camp. And I think this whole story hinges on verse 24. The whole direction of life is on verse 24 about who God is. Then God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream at night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. That verse kind of slips in there. But here's the reality of it. God shows up. God speaks. Living God comes into the camp of Laban and intercedes for Jacob. Laban is not pursuing Jacob just to say, hey, how you been? I missed you. He's going to do him harm. And he's pursuing after him and God steps into the middle of that. Just like he steps into our lives. And he steps into the middle of camp and he comes and he shows up as protector, as deliverer, as shield, as the intercessor. And he speaks, I do not want you to say anything good or bad. What does that mean? It's a little difficult to understand, but I think it means this. What God is really saying to Laban is, listen, as I speak to you this night, you need to understand something about Jacob. 
He's my child. And you, Laban, will have nothing to do with his life anymore. You will not be able to say good or bad. You will not be able to influence him anymore. You have no more weight in regards to my child, Jacob, who is in the promise of the inheritance of mine, who will be the one who will be the forefather and the line of Christ. You don't get to intervene here. You don't get to speak one word that will even reflect or change who he is from now on. You will not touch him. Obviously, Laban speaks to Jacob later on. But I think what God is saying is, he's no longer yours, your servant. He's mine. Do you understand we're children of God? Do you understand that the Lord, like a, like a loving father, steps in and defends and protects and guards and shields and watches your life? Do you understand he lifts our arms when we have absolutely no strength to fight the enemy? That's who our God is. He's the same God yesterday and today. He's the same God who stood by Paul's side when nobody else would. And he said, the Lord stood by my side and he gave me strength. And the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and he will bring me safely into his heavenly realm. You see, Jacob is accused falsely. Twenty years he served and when he is accused falsely, he, he, he is hot. That's what the Hebrew says. He's hot and he's chode, which means he, he tears in, biting, devouring. I think it's a righteous indignation along with some flesh piled on top. I mean, it's just it's everything encompassed. But Jacob recognizes that God's hand is in the middle of this and says in verse 42, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac had not been with me. That's who's with me. You would surely have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands. And last night he rebuked you. Do you feel like you've been taken advantage of? you feel like things just aren't fair? Maybe words have been said about you that, that just aren't true of your character. Words that paint you in an ugly picture. Maybe you're fearful of an upcoming court date and how that's going to turn out. Or you can't believe that your, your company would actually fire you. It seems so unfair. Maybe someone is actually suing you. It might even be a friend. Well, you must know one thing about our loving God, that he stands with you like he did with Moses and Joshua that he loves you because you're his beloved children, that he will fight for you, and that you can rest in him because of that. We get all stirred up because we don't know how to handle the situation, and the Lord says, I know that. But I am your defender. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't have to defend themselves. It doesn't mean we don't take steps. It doesn't mean that we're to, to be a doormat that be walked all over. What it means is that we acknowledge the living God. We acknowledge that he is in control of our lives. We acknowledge who he was from the beginning and who he is today, which is our shield, our protector, our deliverer, our salvation, the one who restores us, the one who puts us on wings of eagles and helps us fly when we cannot the one that sets a banner above us and we lift our arms to God, praising him for who he is. And Jacob is saying, although you accuse me, there is one who stands with me, one who is the righteous judge, 
There is one who will fight for me. And he is the fear of Isaac. He is the one that Isaac gave reverence to and stood in awe of Almighty God. That is the God who stands with me in the middle of this situation that I have no control of and I'm fearful of. And he says, I know that my God, the fear of Isaac, was with me. Otherwise, you would have sent me back with nothing. Laban calls upon all his gods, all his gods to set up the boundary. But look what Jacob does in verse 53 and 54. Jacob took the oath, not in all these other gods. He took the oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. And he offered sacrifice there. And they ate a meal together. Jacob knew very well at this point who delivered him from this situation, from a man, an enemy, who was intent on taking him out of the picture. You don't think our God does the same for us? He knew who was responsible. He knew who interceded. He knew who was the one who lifted up his arm. He is broken and afraid and doesn't know how this is going to turn out. And God shows up. He doesn't just say nice little words to Laban. Hey, Laban, I want you to go ahead and just be casual with Jacob. You can imagine that encounter, God interceding for us. You will not mess with my child. The turn of events happen, and Jacob actually sends off in the power and trust of the Lord and in actually the love of the Lord, which I'm sure he didn't have a lot for Laban. But he makes a meal, and he sends him off with blessing, actually in peace, just like he did with Abimelech. Remember that scene? And God moves. Today in Christ, we live under the same banner. We live under the same protection. We have God who is with us. And Romans 8 says this. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray. But the Spirit himself, he intercedes for us. He speaks with words we can't even express. And it is he who searches our hearts and knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. That's who our God is today. And so when the enemy attacks, like our team in Senegal, as they've been facing many things, especially when they were preparing, or when we face attack from the enemy, the Lord, it is said, he is faithful and he will strengthen and protect from the evil one. That's our God today. The banner is set up, and our arms are lifted in glory to God and praise, because he's the one who will fight the enemies. He is our deliverer, our intercessor, our protector, and we are his children. And may we rest in the truth of who our loving God is. Amen.